And this afternoon we're going to we're going to be looking at Psalm 2. So I'll give you a chance to turn there. Just as a brief introduction to get ourselves situated, Psalm 2 is a companion to Psalm 1, and together they function as a a gateway to the entire book of Psalms. And in these first two Psalms, the reader is shown the blessing of praising God and taking, taking refuge in him. And by receiving the instruction in these two psalms, the reader is essentially prepared for and called to worship. Psalm 1 pronounces blessing upon those who delight in the law of God. And Psalm 2 pronounces blessing upon those who submit to the rule of God. The overall takeaway is that those who genuinely submit to God will not perish under his wrath, but will instead flourish under his blessing. They will remain safe in God as they wait in hope for the coming of his kingdom. Now, when you look at Psalm 2, you'll notice that it doesn't have a heading at the top that states who the author is. However, we have explicit confirmation in the New Testament that this psalm was written by King David. The first two verses of Psalm 2 are quoted by Jesus' disciples in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, and the disciples attributed the words to David. More specifically, they stated that it was God who had spoken these words through David by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. It is the word of God. All scripture is God breathed. Before we read and work our way through this psalm, there are some things that we should understand about about David and his relationship with God and the special position God had given him. David was God's chosen king for Israel. And after God had raised him up and established him in that position, God made a covenant with him. That is, God made special promises to David and swore that he would fulfill these promises no matter what took place afterwards. It's covenant. Now let's look at, you can bookmark Psalm 2. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Since it's a... A larger portion I wanted to read, I figured it would be best for you to turn there and read along with me in the text. So 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Put my bookmark in here, too. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting in verse 8. And we'll read through verse 29. And what we're going to see is the covenant God made with David. The first few verses are promises that are going to be fulfilled during David's life. And following that, we're going to see promises that are going to be fulfilled after David's death. And following that, we're going to see David's response to these gracious promises of God. But starting in verse 8, read along with me. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is God speaking to the prophet Nathan, Nathan, telling him to go to David to relay this message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the 
time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, that's the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then we have David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established yourself. You established for yourself your people Israel to, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established forever, or established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. There's the passage of God's covenant with David and his response, and he understood the promises of God to him. So keep, keep in mind, so those for context, but keep in mind that Israel is God's chosen nation. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God promised to bless, and through whom God promised to bless all the nations of the earth. This is his plan and purpose. That is what he swore in the covenant he made with Abraham, another covenant. His blessing to all the nations through the nation of Israel. When it comes to God's covenant with David, then, and his promises concerning the kingdom of Israel, the implications, then, are also at the global level. Just as God's blessing upon Israel would extend to all the nations through Israel, so also would his rule over Israel extend to all the nations through Israel. More specifically, through Israel's king. God's rule through his king, through his nation, over the nations of the earth. Israel was God's chosen nation, and David was, was God's chosen king. One more passage I want us to look at, Psalm 89. Go ahead and turn there, flip further over into the Psalms, Psalm 89. Uh, 
I didn't put bookmarks in advance so I wouldn't cheat. We'd all have the same time to get there. Psalm 89, starting in verse 19. The one who wrote this psalm is a man named Ethan, and he's reflecting on God's promises to David. But listen to what he says in verse 19, starting in 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. The promises of God in his everlasting covenant with David can be summarized as follows. God promised that David's house, that is his royal family line, would continue forever. And that his sons after him would always be the rightful heirs to the throne of the kingdom of Israel. This royal line would begin with Solomon and would continue generation after generation until one greater than Solomon would be raised up to reign over the kingdom forever. Solomon was the first son of David to reign, but the great hope of God's promises rested in this future son of David who would reign forever. Who is he? The Lord Jesus Christ. David understood this. After God made the covenant promise, David said to him, You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. You see, David perceived that God had spoken not just of what he would do in the immediate future through Solomon, but also what he would do in the distant future through a future descendant, and the implications would be global. David understood that this future descendant who would reign forever, this future son of David, would be greater than himself. Which is why in Psalm 110, David referred to him as his Lord. This future son of his would be his Lord. He would be greater. David recognized that while he himself was God's anointed king over Israel, this future son of his would be the ultimate king. He would be the ultimate anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Mashiach, Messiah, Messiah. The Greek word is Christ, the anointed one. The promised son of David, who is the ultimate anointed one, the Christ, is Jesus of Nazareth. David called him Lord, and so do we. Jesus is the one of whom the angel Gabriel announced to the Virgin Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. David wrote Psalm 2, not just because God had anointed him as king of Israel and promised that he would dominate the surrounding nations, but also because 
God had promised to raise up a future son of his as the ultimate anointed one who would rule the world. Now let's read Psalm 2. David wrote, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we can outline this psalm in the following way. In verses 1 to 3, we have the rebellion of the nations. In verses 4 through 6, we have the response of God. In verses 7 through 9, we have the recognition of God's king. And in verses 10 to 12, we have the responsibility of the nations. In the first three verses, David considers the rebellion of the nations. The earthly earthly rulers and their people are restless in their refusal to serve God and submit themselves to his chosen king. In verse 1, he says, they are raging. Literally, they are restless. And they are plotting. In verse 2, he says that they set themselves, literally, they take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. The earthy rulers are united in their rebellion against God and his chosen king. And what do they say? Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They view the righteous rule of God, not as benevolent care, but as oppression. And they view God's anointed one as the one who is standing in the way of their pursuit of happiness, not as the one who can lead them in the way of true and lasting happiness. Therefore, they rebel together against God and his chosen king. People want to be a law unto themselves. There is a desire, a natural desire in man to be a law unto himself. Apart from the saving grace of God, all men are natural born rebels. They do not want the rule of God restraining their wicked desires. They do not want the law of God testifying that their works are evil. They do not want God's king enforcing his righteous commandments. They do not want God's people reminding them of these things. They want to do as they please. Without God and his chosen king telling them what to do. This is rebellion. They want to be free to practice the Evil desires over their heart without being bothered and without consequence. That is the freedom they desire. But is that truly freedom? To do whatever you want without consequence, without accountability to God, is that truly freedom? To indulge in evil? No. The Bible tells us that is slavery. 
slavery to sin, and its end is eternal death. Is this not still the state of the world in which we live when we read this? It's ringing a bell. And although there has always been hostility between nations, one thing that unites them all is their rebellion against God, their rejection of his word, and their hatred of his chosen king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The rulers of this earth are outranked, but they refuse to accept it. The peoples of the earth want to be a law unto themselves, even within our own country. We witness relentless rebellion against God and hostility towards Christ, not just at the individual level, but also at the institutional level, at the highest level. Every branch and level of our government sanctions the murder of unborn children. Every branch and level of our government celebrates the perversion of marriage and sexuality. And these abominations are championed in schools, in the media, and in the marketplace. Sure, our country was founded upon Christian principles, but those principles have been abandoned. One of the founding fathers, John Adams, warned of this danger in 1798. 1798. He wrote the following. Should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation, while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. It's almost prophetic. And here we are today, over 200 years later, and this nation is raging. The vast majority of this nation's rulers and citizens have taken their stand against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ. They, too, are joining in the rally cry, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. David opens this psalm with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? A rhetorical question does not expect an answer, but it's asked in order to make a statement. And what's the statement? The statement David is making is shown in the last phrase, in vain, in vain. The nations are literally plotting emptiness emptiness. They are scheming together for no real purpose because their plans are guaranteed to fail. All their efforts to revolt against the rule of God and his chosen king will come to nothing. They are in vain. Now, down here, it may seem at times that the ruling class, that is the, the leaders of the nation, along with the leaders of Certain corporations and other institutions have nearly limitless power and zero accountability. David pictured a, a coalition of the kings of the earth, banding, a banding together of the nations to present a united front. That would appear on the earthly level to be a tremendous power, I mean, from that perspective. But all that impressiveness vanishes when you consider the one whom these forces are united against. David points us to him and provides us with a heavenly perspective starting in verse 4. We had the rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3, and now we have 
the response of God to that rebellion. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Literally, he mocks them. He mocks them. Keep this pictured in your mind. Keep it pictured in your mind. The rich and powerful are plotting on earth, and God is laughing at them. They are working together to fight against God's rule, and God is mocking them. What a joke. How silly. How ridiculous. Worthy of ridicule. The prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The prophet Isaiah also said, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The nations rage and God laughs. He mocks the plotting rulers. That should cause us to take heart, right? The Christian can take heart. We can take heart. The governor of our state may be pretending to be an emperor and decreeing that the church is not essential. The Democratic Party may have seized the reins of power at the federal level of government, and its leaders may be advancing their godless agenda with the help of mainstream news media, big tech companies, universities, and the entertainment industry. These so-called rulers, along with the rich and powerful who support and to some degree control them, the Lord knows, they're taking their stand. They are seizing the day. And God laughs. Their efforts are worthy of ridicule. Why? Because God has already established his agenda. Which is centered on Christ. And his good purpose will stand. Even though the nations rage and scheme against it. While their efforts are laughable, their offense is gravely serious because they have committed high treason against their holy creator and his righteous anger is aimed at them. They've taken their stand, they've stated their goal, and now God speaks. Verses 5 through 6, we read, He will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is the name of, of the most prominent hill in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the city of the Jebusites that David conquered when he captured their fortress on that hill. David made the fortress of Zion his royal residence, and and Jerusalem became the capital city of Israel. And so Zion ends up being used as a term to refer to Jerusalem as well. And just before David had captured Zion, all the elders of Israel had anointed David as their king, recognizing that he was the one that God had chosen to rule over him, or over them. And God had David anointed king much long before that. And after he captured Zion settled there, and his royal house was built, we read in 2 Samuel, and this is in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. The Lord established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God had installed his king on Zion, and David knowing that God would raise up a future son of his who would be greater than him and reign forever, recognized the permanency of God's purpose in establishing him as the king of Israel and the implications that had for all nations for all time. 
David reigned from Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago is when David reigned from Jerusalem. And the promised son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, will reign from Jerusalem as well. When he returns, God's declaration, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, will have its ultimate fulfillment. The decision has been made. There is nothing that the nations in David's time could do about it, and there is nothing that the nations in our time can do about it. In Psalm 33, we read this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So we saw the response of God in verses 4 through 6, and now we will see the recognition of God's king in verses 7 through 9. With God's covenant promises to him in mind, David wrote prophetically. He himself enjoyed the special status of being treated by God as a son and being granted the power to subdue the nations immediately surrounding Israel. However, the claims in these verses, if we look at them, I mean, they're, they're far greater. And they should therefore be understood to be the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David, who would surpass David. Here is what God would say to him. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In these verses, we see the Christ's divine identity and global reign. You see his divine identity and global reign. He is the Son of God. Not a Son of God, like David and Solomon were through adoption. He is the Son of God. He was begotten. Not in the sense that he was brought into existence, but in the sense that he, the eternal Son of God, became a human being so that he was both truly God and truly man. The angel Gabriel said to the Virgin Mary concerning the miraculous conception of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We see in verse 8 in our psalm that God says to his son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Well, what does this mean? It means that all that the godless rulers and influencers in this world, all that they own, all that they control, will be taken away and given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The world is his inheritance. Scripture says of Christ that all things were created through him and for him. Regarding the nations, God says to his son in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Christ will put down their rebellion once and for all and reign over them. His power will be unmatched. The strongest opposition to him will be like fragile pottery. Like fine china. That you have to keep safe and protect lest it break easily. His kingdom then, when he returns and he sets it up, will be a kingdom of righteousness and peace and it will endure forever. Can't wait to see that kingdom. 
it will please God to give all of this to his son, and it will also please, get this, it'll please the son to share it all with his people. Revelation chapter 2, one of the Lord's letters to the churches, we read this promise from the Lord. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So the very promise of God to his Son, the Son is making to his people, whom he redeemed by his own blood, by his death on the cross for their sins. His death and resurrection, he secured their salvation, and he plans to share his inheritance with his people. The promises to Christ become promises to us. So if you are in Christ, if you belong to the Son of God, then you will not only be granted entrance into his kingdom, but you will inherit it and reign with him in glory and in the fullness of joy forever. That's your hope. Jesus said to his disciples, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's worth the cost. Such a small thing for us to lay down our lives to receive the life that he gives and the hope that he gives and the future that he promises us. So keep your eyes fixed on that prize. Desire that better country, far better than this one. Greet it from afar and consider yourself a stranger on the earth as we read of the faithful in Hebrews 11. Greet that better country from afar and consider yourself a stranger on the earth. Where your treasure is, the Lord said, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure? The kingdoms of this world will be Shattered, but the coming kingdom of Christ will endure forever. So we saw the recognition of God's king in verses 7 through 9, and now let's consider what David wrote concerning the, the responsibility of the nations. The responsibility of the nations, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what do we have here? Surprisingly, we have not just a warning, but an invitation It's an epic altar call. But aren't, aren't these the rulers who have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed? I mean, aren't these the rebels? Aren't these the enemies of God? Well, yes, but so were we. So were we. Before God graciously saved us and granted us repentance and faith in his son so that we would be forgiven and have eternal life. The Apostle Paul wrote, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Scripture says, God mercifully made us alive together with Christ. Dead in sin, sinners, enemies of God. But God acted. 
mercifully. And he brought out of that darkness, he brought us out. Brought us out of that rebellion so that we would no longer be enemies, but his children. The saving grace of God breaks through the hardened heart of every sinner whom God has appointed to eternal life. We don't know who that is, but he does. No one he has appointed to eternal life is beyond his saving grace. It will break through that rebellion. Even kings and rulers, even the rich and powerful, God's saving grace will break through their hardened hearts. And it will cause them to repent and believe. I'll think of a mighty man like Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings of a great empire. God brought that man to his knees, and he became a worshiper of God. He can humble the mighty if God so chooses, and he can pour out his mercy and grace on them. So rebellion against God and his chosen king is the height of folly. It's absolutely foolish. And David's message to the rulers of the earth is to embrace wisdom. And what is wisdom? Well, we see in verse 11, turning from the path of raging rebellion against God and onto the path of joyful service unto God. That's wisdom. Wisdom says no to defying God and yes to fearing God. Fearing God? Well, Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a right acknowledgement of God's greatness and power and excellence and holiness and authority, and it results in worshipful submission. If you don't fear God, you're not a worshiper of God. One commentator defines the fear of God this way, Fearing God is becoming so acutely aware of his moral purity and omnipotence that one is genuinely afraid to disobey him. And again, we kind of see this in the home. Little children and their dad, their father. There is a good kind of fear, recognizing the authority. They want to please their father. They're kind of scared to disobey. That wouldn't go well with them, would it? Right? But in a such greater way, we're to understand that we're to, to fear the Lord. That's wisdom. It's for our good and for our joy and for his glory. And David concludes by holding out a warning and a promise of blessing in verse 12. Now, The translation, kiss the sun, which appears in numerous translations, is it's disputed. This is one of those passages where there's different ways you can translate it. One of, the, one of these sections of scripture, and, and this happens, and you'll see this in different translations, they word it differently. Well, this translation is disputed. The Hebrew word for sun, bane, used, it's used in verse 7, by the way, it appears in this psalm. It's not the word that is used here. And I'm just telling you a little bit about this so it's not just like, eh, it's different, just trust me. I'll give you a little something as to why we can consider a different translation. But the word, Hebrew word for son is not used here. The word used in verse 7 is bane, Hebrew word for son. The word used in verse 12 here is bear, which in Aramaic means son. In Aramaic, but in Hebrew it means pure. And the verb kiss here refers to paying homage. That's that's understood and recognized. It, paying homage, it's a sign of showing great respect and honor. That being said, rather than understanding the statement as a, a command to pay homage to the sun. And there's good arguments to go either way on both sides, but I would lean towards understanding it as a command to pay pure homage to the Lord, which follows up the command in verse 11 to serve him with fear. 
serve the Lord with fear. Pay pure homage to him. The NET Bible translates it in this way, goes this route, and they translate it as follows. Give sincere homage. Give sincere homage, pure homage. Now David already called for people to serve the Lord with fear, but here he makes the point that God is not merely looking for your outward compliance. He is looking for your pure devotion. That is genuine submission and obedience from your heart. And he weighs the heart. He searches the heart. He knows. He looks upon the heart. He doesn't want the outward conformity and compliance. He wants sincere, pure devotion. That is the call to serve him. The rebellious nations and rulers and peoples of the earth are under the threat of God's judgment if they do not. So are all men. And how are they to demonstrate their submission to God? How would they demonstrate that? And this psalm is clear. They demonstrate it by submitting to God's chosen king. In David's time, that would have been David and Solomon after him, but such submission ultimately looked ahead to the promised son of David, the son of God, as the rightful heir of all things and the one who would bring the kingdom of God and reign forever. David made this clear in verses 6 through 9. He's established that. So when he's calling the nations and the rulers, serve the Lord of fear, pay sincere, pay pure homage to him, he's made it clear that you do that by submitting to his anointed king. Which goes far beyond just David. And ultimately looks ahead to the ultimate son of David. So, in our time, we are pointed to the promised son of David, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has already come into the world and will return again to establish his everlasting kingdom. We demonstrate genuine repentance and submission to God. We respond to this call that we find here at the end of the psalm by trusting and following after Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, the son of David, the son of God. Psalm 2 is God's warning to the unbelieving world. Choose this day whom you will serve is essentially the call. Choose this day whom you will serve. Repent or perish. It is better to bend than to be broken, is it not? It is better to submit than to be shattered by repenting and submitting to God, sinners take, as he says here, refuge in God. You take refuge in God by repenting and submitting to God. And in God, in that refuge, you are safe from his judgment and wrath. Do you see that? So proper fear of God is not a fear that makes you run away from him, right? It drives you to him as the only shelter, as the only safe place from his righteous judgment because you're acknowledging what you deserve and you're crying out to him you're going to him to appeal for mercy humbling yourself and seeking rest in him psalm 2 not only is a warning to the unbelieving world it is also god's encouragement to his people why when we read this psalm we take it to heart we keep it in mind we know that the godless governments of this world will be brought to an end we know that god's kingdom will come we know that the lord jesus christ will reign we know that we will experience the everlasting blessing of joy and peace and life in his kingdom we know that so it says serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling offer him your pure devotion blessed are all who take refuge 
in him. God is our refuge, and Christ is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for allowing us to direct our our thoughts, our attention to this psalm as as this this call to the unbelieving world to, to repent and submit to your rule, and particularly to your son, Jesus Christ. And, but also we see it as such an, a comfort knowing that you have established your plans and they are good, pleasing, and perfect. They are glorious. They are for, far beyond all that we could ask or imagine. And we have a living hope in your son, Jesus Christ, the one you promised and the one you sent into this world 2,000 years ago to open the door for us, to, to pave the way for us, to make the way for us to receive your mercy and forgiveness by giving his life in our place and dying on the cross for our sins to pay that penalty so that your justice might be upheld and so that instead of us receiving justice from you, we would be able to be recipients of your mercy. And we thank you for the living hope that we have in Christ who not only died but was raised to life and gives eternal life to us, to all who repent and believe and trust in his name. We have a refuge in you, God. And we thank you for the glorious future that awaits us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would share the inheritance that belongs to you, that you would share that with us. You've ransomed us, you've redeemed us, you've purchased us. May we live lives worthy of you. May we proclaim your greatness, your supremacy, and the hope that all of us have in you. And we pray that we would hold that hope out to the lost and not discount even the rulers of this world, the rich and the powerful, those who are in prominent positions that are currently raging against you. Lord, we know we are only saved by your grace, and we know that they can only be saved by your grace. We pray that we would be faithful witnesses to the end and also take heart knowing that whatever evil we see in this world, there will be a day of reckoning. You will take all things into account. And for those who seek refuge in you and in the and trust in the perfect, sufficient sacrifice of your son, we won't have our sins counted against us. We will be forgiven, and we have an eternal future to look forward in your kingdom. Pray that you would help us to be faithful witness. Help us, help us to be encouraged and strengthened even when it, it seems that our world is falling apart. Lord, we know it is. We know that without you, it's lost. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would bolster our faith in challenging times. May we take to heart the words of the psalm and seek to honor you with our lives. Amen.